What if I told you that all you need to know about finance you can learn from your kindergarten schooling? Right after college, I I worked in Japan as a kindergarten teacher, and I thought about things in terms of you want to try and treat people the way you would want to be treated, and in general, you should be able to try and explain things in a way in which someone should be able to understand. That was actually a really big help in, in terms of helping me develop my career. That is Connor McKenna. He's been in finance or banking for over a decade and a half. And in the last eight years, he's closed deals for eight gigawatts of wind and solar projects. Before his days brokering power plants, though, he led a pretty different life. He taught kids in Japan. He studied philosophy. He spent his vacations volunteering around the world. In 2004, Connor got hooked up with an investment bank. He started modeling risk, and he liked the job. But it was a world away from the kind of altruistic work he really loved. And then, in 2006, he went to Haiti to help earthquake victims. I remember coming out of that with two overarching feelings. Number one was, wow, this was, it was an emotional roller coaster ride. Uh, I'm just working with the people there and, try, and, and trying to do what I could to help in my short period of time there. Also, it, it was the feeling that I need to do more with my life. It, it can't just be about making money for places that just make money he pretty quickly made a choice. A difficult one, but one that just seemed right. So what happened was I quit my job. I quit my job and I went went to Columbia Business School. Connor thought, maybe I can go to business school and take my analytical and banking skills and marry those with a mission and some compassion. And he focused on the environment. It was around this time when the financial world started taking environmental stuff pretty seriously. Banks were putting money behind renewables, carbon markets were taking off, and big companies like Walmart were talking up sustainability goals. Connor figured there was plenty of opportunity, but there was just one problem. He entered business school in 2007, and when he finished in 2009, well, there was an economic crisis going on. And there were no, I mean, it was a very challenging time for anybody to find a job, nevertheless a career switcher. Um, So what I did was I worked for free for a year. I worked for an environmental um, fund um, where I just said, look, I want to be in the industry. I want to do this. And I know you can't hire anyone. Just let me work here for free. So I I took the last of my savings and blessed the money I had for my student loans and, you know, lived on a couch and, and was able to get that level of experience, which led to my first job, you know, in the industry. And then eventually led to me being here at Cohen Resnick. In 2011, Connor landed at Cone Resnick Capital, where he started structuring and negotiating deals for big wind, solar, and biomass projects. And as the industry volume grew, so did his experience, and so did the size of his deals. A couple of years ago, Connor helped broker one of the biggest utility-scale solar deals, a platform sale of S-Power, a developer with 150 projects worth 1.3 gigawatts. He wasn't just helping people, he was now moving markets. I, I, I joke sometimes, it's, you know, it's the, this is the perfect marriage of my you know, over, over-competitiveness and my Catholic guilt. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like business school paid off. I'm Stephen Lacey. In this episode, the real art of the deal. How caring about people and having a purpose can translate into billions of dollars in cash and push renewables further into the mainstream. This episode is produced in partnership with Cone Resnick Capital. So we all know the art of the deal. It's Donald Trump's 1987 book that offers hard-nosed business advice. Things like fight back, play the game hard, 
deliver the goods. And since the 80s, a lot of us have internalized this advice. It shaped our popular culture perception of real estate and Wall Street. It takes guts and a cutthroat approach to get ahead, to get the next deal done. Well, Connor McKenna has a different take. The real art of the deal, he says, is empathy. And this isn't a soft tactic, because when you're trying to pull together hundreds or thousands of megawatts of projects and do it with the same people again and again, you have to actually care about the people on the other side of the table. At its core, renewable energy, the renewable energy industry is predicated on long-term assets that generate long-term cash flows. You have people who want to invest in long-term cash flows, and you, uh, on, on one side. On the other, you have people that want to do more. If you don't have a long-term vision, then you'll have a misalignment with what it is that you're representing. Therefore, even if you're not mission-driven, but you still have the long-term vision, that alignment for long-term partnerships allows for the greatest levels of flexibility and the most important aspect for me, willingness to understand empathy because you want to be able to repeat and you want to be able to do scale. So building actual relationships rather than one-upsmanship. So every time we've seen someone focus on getting that last dollar out of an individual transaction and maximizing their return in that one deal, we have found that they have had a much harder time in repeating business and growing and scaling at the same rate as this industry. Those that have left money on the table and allowed for their partners to feel successful as well have had a lot more repeat business. And when you deal with as much complexity as some of these transactions require, it's more important to have a partner who's willing to work with you than it is to get the most out of it for yourself. Okay, so what does this mean in practice? I mentioned earlier a deal that Connor worked on, the sale of S-Power. It was a really big one, a deal that included a development platform with 1.3 gigawatts of projects, plus 10 gigawatts more that were in motion. S-Power was co-founded by a couple of guys, Ryan and Steve Kramer, who knew how to buy and sell conventional power plants, meaning they knew how to raise money and they knew how to negotiate with utilities. They partnered with an investor called Fir Tree Capital, and in 2012, they set their sights on solar. They, what they thought is, heck, we're very, very close to a lot of the utilities in the market. We can, if we're given the right assets, we can probably work with all these utilities very well to allow, to allow us to scale. And this, says Connor, is where relationships made the difference. S-Power started buying up projects that were in various stages of distress, and they sat down with all the players with a stake in the project and figured out how to get them done, how to cut a deal that everyone liked. They started with just a handful of megawatts and quickly scaled. But there was also about 400 megawatts of assets that were distressed because interconnects weren't managed well or, or the uh, power purchase agreements weren't, weren't managed well. And then what they did really effectively was they worked with, first they worked with utilities to help facilitate renegotiation of those agreements to something that worked for both the utilities and could work for S-Power. So they were willing to give to allow things to work more optimally for their counterparties. After they worked through that, what we were able to do is we were able to work with some of the larger investors in the market 
to say this is a great portfolio you can invest into with a great management company that will continue to be able to scale. And in the early deals, what S Power was very good at was meeting the needs of their partners. And that was working with groups like U.S. Bank, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, doing transactions early on that allowed them to say, we, will be, we would love to do repeat business with U.S. Power. And then on the back end of that, working with some of the debt providers after these were all well set up. And Fertree was great about this part too, which was waiting to make sure that, they, that these assets were built first before utilizing debt. And then saying, this is a very tight and good portfolio that you're investing into. You should feel comfortable with this investment. And therefore getting fairly good terms from those, from those banks and then allowing them to be, again, be able to do repeat business such that when there was an opportunity for a significant scale, when that 400 megawatts turned into 1.2 gigawatts over a three-year period, there was a long line of partners. And then that success breeds success. Have, have there been any deals that you've worked on where relationships were tossed aside or you felt like people were really just after the, the, the dollars and pennies on the table and that it, it, it hurt a deal because of that? Yeah, and that was something I dealt with a little bit more um, earlier in my career, um, where there were a lot more groups in the earlier days that were saying, hey, I want to make a bunch of money on this one transaction. And and based on my experience in doing other types of deals in real estate or in, in another part of the market, this is how you do it. And this is how you're successful. And I remember going through that and go um, in, in one deal in particular, we ended up having to the our client wanted to negotiate extremely hard this was this was something down in puerto rico um a few years back but our client wanted to negotiate so hard for every dollar and kept on coming back with more asks of the counterparty that eventually the counterparty said do you know what this isn't worth it we're we're gonna go and unfortunately at that point our client was saying, oh, wait, we're, 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 we need to put more money into this deal to keep it going. But now we've lost our counterparty. How do we, how do we move this forward? And so instead of, having, um, instead of having a good long-term partner where they could have done another three, four, five deals beyond that together, what they ended up with was trying to find very fast money to meet the immediate needs of the asset. And ended up getting a lot less in terms of in terms of aggregate value than they would have if they had simply tried to say, you know what, this is a good enough deal. I'm ready to move on. Let's talk about the next opportunity. Um, and it was a really good experience for me to go through. I was a bit more junior at the time, um, and you know, as anyone else might do, I said, you know, I'll just listen to whatever the client tells me to do. But I think coming out of that, what I found was. I was a little bit more vocal as it pertained to let's think long term here and where is real value for you and it isn't in the individual taking more dollars from them it's in creating more dollars in general well connor i think you have laid out a pretty convincing case here we have of course been talking about what you call the real art of the deal now i want to apply that to the art of the deal Let's pretend you are rewriting Trump's Art of the Deal book, but for renewable energy finance. You have to take his 11 lessons and apply them directly to this business. 
So how would you briefly modify each lesson for a renewable-specific audience? You ready? No, look, no, I, I think that that's great. And of the 11 things you mentioned, I would probably say there are about seven that I would adjust or in some cases just say, no, this isn't the right, this isn't the right approach. Okay, let's see what you agree and disagree with then. Lesson one, think big. Trump says, if you're going to be thinking anyway, you might as well think big. I actually go the other way, which is think small first. Understand the fundamentals for the individual assets or the fundamentals underlying what you're working on immediately before going into something big. Where we've seen people fall apart in this industry is they think so big up front, they miss what's right under their feet. Um, the, the adage I like to use is if you're trying to hike up a mountain and you're only staring at the peak, you will trip along the way. You've got to be able to see what's underneath your feet first. And eventually you will get to the top of the mountain as long as you now the, there is an important balance there, which is focus on what's right in front of you, but always make sure you're watching the markers in between to get to where you're going, plan your strategy, but then focus on the details. Because this is an industry in which missing details will end up delaying deals and delays in deals can sometimes kill deals. So you have to think, I think you have to think small first and then afterwards think long. Okay, so number two, Trump says protect the downside and the upside will take care of itself. That actually I agree with. Uh, that's one I did not circle. I think that in general you have to be you should you should you should underwrite and prepare to underwrite to your downside, and then as long as you're comfortable with that downside, you will have longer term success. So the good will take care of itself. Then I agree with that. Great. Okay. So the next one: maximize the options. Keep a lot of balls in the air. No. I, again, this goes back to my idea of stay focused. Get it right. And get it right with people that you can do volume with. The balls you can keep in the air are the ways in which you can grow. Think about the next step after, as opposed to trying to keep as many balls in the air on it, on what you're doing today, try and get through the today stuff as efficiently as possible so that you're most impactful in applying the opportunities for growth. Number four, know your market. Trump says, I don't hire a lot of number crunchers and I don't trust fancy marketing surveys. I do my own surveys and draw my own conclusions. Yeah, um, I, I think the idea of knowing your market is important, but number crunchers are important because of what we're predicated on, which is you're not necessarily always selling growth. You're selling cash. You have to make sure you have the cash right. On the one hand, I, I say I agree with know your market, but part of knowing your market specifically for renewables is actually knowing that numbers are important. <laughs> yes, they are. Yes, they are. Particularly when you're talking about something that's going to last for many, many decades. Number five, use your leverage. Yeah. Actually, the, the where I've seen the most value is in not overly utilizing your leverage. When you have leverage and you give it up and you show them that you're giving up your leverage, then you are creating a partnership. You are showing that you're willing to be a partner to this person who is giving you cash for long-term cash in return for their expectation of long-term cash flows, that's when you get the most. And you get the most, not just, you, you may lose a few cents on the front end, but you'll gain significant dollars on the back end. It's actually know your leverage. I'd agree with know your leverage 
and concede where you can to allow for long-term um, alignment amongst parties. So this next one is, I guess, more real estate focused and, you know, renewable energy development is a, a real estate oriented business. I'm going to read the lesson and the quote because I think it's a bit confusing. So I wanted to get your take. Number six is enhance your location. And Trump says, you don't necessarily need the best location. What you need is the best deal. Your thoughts, Connor? It's going to depend on what your strategy is. Your strategy can be either to try and get as much money as you can um, for your acreage or do as many acres as possible. Um, and then with the intent being overall profitability. One of our clients, Onyx, has been very successful in the distributed generation market because what they do is they they get contracts with on top of roofs or, or adjacent to commercial or industrial sites where they can get the most dollars per kilowatt hour but you're dealing with smaller sizes. Conversely, um, one of our other clients, Geronimo, focuses on larger parcels of land that are that have strong interconnects where they can feed a lot of power. The answer is going to change for everybody. Number seven, it's all about the press. Get the word out. Yeah, that can go bad too. Um, a lot of times in this market, the investors don't like to be the people that you're working with, if you're a developer or you're a sponsor or you're the um, owner of the asset, sometimes you don't want to have too much out there. Um, you don't want to be at the front of every newspaper or everything going on, mostly because those that are investing into these companies sometimes like to be a little bit quieter. They're long-term guys who just want to kind of do their job and they don't want to deal with a lot of, a lot of noise around their transactions. So when I sent you this list, I can picture you circling the ones you agree with and the ones you disagree with. And number eight is one that I'm assuming you have the most commentary on because it's it appears to me to be most antithetical to what we've been talking about. Uh, and that is fight back. Your response. Yeah. I mean, look, my background prior to finance was actually I, I was a um, I was a fighter. I was um, I, I did golden gloves. I I did. I was on the U.S. national karate team for the Pan American Games. Wait, wait. You were a literal fighter. Yeah. Okay. So this one's more complicated than I thought. No, no. <laughs> and, and and but like you know, I've I've done it, and I did it for a living. Um, and I can tell you that you only fight when you absolutely have to. Those that are true fighters, those that understand that, or 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 those that understand fighting, or 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 that aspect, understand that you fight only when it's absolutely necessary. And I don't disagree with the idea of fighting back, but you fight back only as a last resort. Wise words indeed. Number nine is deliver the goods. Always. Number 10 is contain the costs. This one I actually, I didn't circle, I boxed it. Um, because I because there's two different ways to look at this. You want to improve the efficiency of a transaction. And that sometimes means not fighting over every little thing. Um and instead focusing on making sure that you that you get the core principles right and then the details that that aren't as as material can be worked out on the other side it's okay to allow for value to be given to your partner and that's the idea of when i say leaving dollars on the table or leaving money on the table that part is important 
it's the I'd say that you know in terms of how the, the how the money is split up, I believe in giving to your partner, but not necessarily to um, the people in, advisors or you know counsel. Those places are the are the dollars that are wasted. Um, I know it sounds counterintuitive for someone in my seat, but y- you want to create as much value between you and the other party as you can. The final one is one that it sounds like you're already following. Have fun. Yeah, and that's that's the driving principle of I think a lot of things we've talked about today, which is I get excited every morning to come to work. I'm exhausted by the end, um, but it's one in which I'm just every morning I get really fired up to be able to do my job. And my job is effectively to help good companies become great and a great industry to become even bigger. Did you, did you imagine as a kindergarten teacher in Japan that you'd have uh, a corner office there in Manhattan working for a, a major financial institution? <laughs> uh, look, coming from where I came from, this was not, this was a, this was like a wildest dream type of thing. Uh, honestly, it's just something where I believe that as long as you try really, really hard at whatever you're doing and put yourself into it, something good's going to happen if you don't. And if you don't stop liking doing what you're doing, then you're not going to be passionate anymore, which means you shouldn't be doing it. So move on, you know. Connor McKenna is a senior managing director at Cone Resnick Capital. He joined us from his office in New York. Connor, this was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Thank you as well, Stephen. This podcast was produced in partnership with Cone Resnick Capital. Cone Resnick Capital is an investment bank focused on sustainability. And since 2008, the company has executed 125 deals worth $19 billion. If you're looking to close your next deal, and if you want to work with people who actually care, go to coneresnickcapital.com. That's C-O-H-N-R-E-Z-N-I-C-K capital.com. And follow the link in the show notes.